You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 8 this morning. And as we prepare to think about this text, it's interesting how there are certain key decisions that we make over the course of our lives that tend to forever leave a lasting consequence upon our lives. You know, a lot of the daily decisions we make are rather inconsequential, aren't they? You know, perhaps you decided last night to eat cake and ice cream for dessert. And that one-time decision will rather minimally impact your life unless you make it a nightly habit, right? And then the cumulative effects of those smaller decisions pile up and compound. But there are some decisions that we make one-time, one-time decisions that have a massive and irreversible consequence upon our lives. We are changed forever by the decision that we make. Maybe it's a job you choose to take. Maybe it's who you choose to marry. Maybe it's where you choose to live. All of that can leave a massive impact on the trajectory of our lives. And with the wisdom of Scripture, wise counsel and from other believers, and of course a great deal of prayer, we can trust that God's sovereign hand is at work as we make those decisions to honor Him. But sometimes we don't do that. Sometimes we make decisions according to our own wisdom, our own insight, our own cunning, we do what we think is best. We do what we desire to do. And we have this tendency to rationalize our decision-making that often is just a masking of a rebellious spirit that's within us. So often we make decisions not guided by the Lord and his instructions, but guided by our flesh. And when we make such decisions, there are often lasting consequences to those decisions. The Bible tells us over and over again, we reap what we sow. So even though God is gracious to forgive us in our sins, according to Jesus Christ, we often still live with the consequences of our actions afterwards, this side of eternity. So in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see Israel make a foolish decision, a decision with lasting consequences. Israel will reject the Lord as their king, and will instead demand to have a human king. 1 Samuel 8 is a transitionary chapter in the book as we move from the ministry of Samuel, who would be Israel's last judge, and as we transition into the monarchy of Israel. After God's people entered the land of Canaan under Joshua's leadership, Israel was to be a theocracy, a theocracy, meaning that Yahweh, the God of Israel, would rule the people directly. They don't need a president. They don't need a Congress. They don't need a king. God himself would be the king of his people. But of course, because of the people's unfaithfulness to God's law and their recurring and rampant idolatry, the Lord's hand, as Judges describes it in chapter 2, was frequently against his people. And at the Lord's timing and motivated by his compassionate grace, the Lord throughout judges would would raise up 
in as, a, as, as a, he would raise up a, a leader, a human leader called a judge who would deliver Israel out of the, the present crisis that they find themselves in. And so that pattern continued. Up to this point in 1 Samuel, the time of judges has continued. And so as we read and as we've read and studied the last few weeks, the fall of Israel's judge Eli, we see the Lord also raises up a judge at the same time in Samuel. And in 1 Samuel 7, last week we saw that Samuel leads the nation in a corporate nationwide revival as the people repent of their sin, as they turn to the Lord, and God gives them the blessing of his salvation as he grants them victory over the Philistines and their army. So for the first time in a very long time, the people of Israel are enjoying peace and security and prosperity, all under Samuel as their judge. Israel flourished under Samuel's leadership. But there's a problem that begins to emerge at the start of chapter 8. Samuel was getting old. He's getting old. What will happen next? Let's pick up reading in verse 1 of chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Samuel was an extraordinary leader. And he seemed to have just one key weakness here, his mortality. The blessing that God had provided Israel through Samuel's leadership would not last forever. He too would die like we all do. So while the, the Lord raised up many different judges over the course of Israel's history, again, you can go back and read the book of Judges for that. Many of those judges were just regional leaders who served for but a brief and short time. But Samuel seems to be the first judge in Israel's history who has his leadership recognized by the entire nation of Israel. If you look down in just in verse 4, just a second, we see that all the elders of Israel will come to Samuel and gather to speak with him. So though the nation, through Samuel, the nation of Israel has been united together in a way that it had not been yet throughout the period of the judges. And so things are going well. The nation's united. The Lord's bringing his blessing. But Samuel's getting old. What would Israel do without Samuel? With the blessing and the stability that Israel has experienced under his leadership, would it continue? Or would we go back into the cycle of the judges, repeating that over and over and over again? Would Israel yet again slump into their idolatry without a godly leader? And would the Lord yet again raise his hand against the people because of their disobedience? And we're also tipped off by the text that there are some concerning similarities between Eli and Samuel. As Samuel's sons seem to be just as worthless as Eli's sons. Eli functioned as Israel's priest and judge. He kind of had a dual role. And so the office of the priesthood was hereditary, meaning you got it passing down through your family. But the role of judge was not to be passed down to your family, that passed down to your sons. It's interesting to go back and read Judges chapter 8. The people requested Gideon to set up a dynasty, but Gideon rejects the request. And here's what Gideon said in Judges 8 verse 23. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you 
and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So Gideon declines, right? The judges were not kings. It was not to be a dynasty. They weren't set up that way. They were momentary leaders that the Lord would select and choose and use as he saw fit. But because of the widespread responsibility of judging all of Israel, as Samuel seemed to have in a unique way, Samuel decides to commission his two sons to help him, Joel and Abijah, to assist him, particularly in the southern region where Beersheba was. So Samuel stayed in Ramah, we see that at the end of chapter 7, but his sons were judges 50 miles south in Beersheba. So was Samuel planning a dynasty here? Well, no, I don't think that's the case. But the corruption of Samuel's sons only adds to the leadership fears of what will happen after Samuel dies. There are some concerning parallels, maybe that you're identifying here, between Samuel's sons and Eli's sons. But Samuel, as we see in the text, is presented in a very different way than Eli, isn't he? There's some similarities, but there's some key differences. Samuel does show poor judgment in placing his sons to exercise leadership in the southern part of Israel. But Joel and Abijah did not operate under the direct oversight of Samuel as Eli's sons did. Samuel is never presented as being complicit in his son's corruptions, nor did Samuel benefit from them in any way. The two men, Samuel's sons, were a long way from Samuel's observation and influence. But Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, operated under his direct supervision in Shiloh. So the text doesn't implicate Samuel in the guilt of his sons like Eli, Eli has with his. In fact, we see that Samuel is the measuring rod for his son's assessment. Look at verse 3. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways. So in contrast, we see Samuel served faithfully with righteousness and justice, while his two sons down south perverted justice and took bribes. So while Samuel has been flawless in his leadership, we see that his delegation leaves much to be lacking. You know, it's easy in the burden of leadership, particularly those who carry a heavy weight of leadership. It's easy to share responsibility with those unqualified to wield it. When Moses does something similar by following his father Jethro's father-in-law's Jethro's advice to share the leadership burden with others, Moses appoints men in Exodus 18 who fear God and who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. Moses puts qualified men in place to share the burden of leadership. But with Samuel, he's either blinded by nepotism or perhaps lacking discernment. But Samuel commissions his unqualified sons into a position of authority they're unfit to possess. Character matters, particularly when it comes to leading God's people. This is why in the New Testament, when Paul gives his qualifications for the office of elder and deacon in 1 Timothy 3, the leadership qualifications are predominantly majority character-driven, not ability-driven. The only requirement of ability listed in those texts is for the office of elder, and there must be an aptness to teach. Everything else is character-driven. But it's easy. It is easy for nepotism, for favoritism, for all sorts of partiality to creep into the church's leadership choices. 
When assessing a person's qualifications for leadership in Christ's church, we cannot let our personal bias cause us to overlook disqualifying characteristics and deficiencies. So as Samuel grew old, concerns for the future of Israel began to emerge. Even in his role as judge, it's not to be passed down to his sons, but his sons are corrupt leaders. So John Woodhouse put it this way. He said, Israel's well-being cannot be guaranteed by the sons of their leaders. The best leaders can have the worst sons. We see that all throughout 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And so yet another leadership crisis is on the horizon for God's people. The elders of Israel begin to grow concerned about their future and they share what they consider to be a rather reasonable plan to break the cycle of the judges and to bring the nation of Israel to stability like they've enjoyed during Samuel. Let's keep reading in verse four and five. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. The request here marks that decisive, pivotal turning point in the history of Israel. In a way, rather than trusting the Lord to raise up another judge as the Lord sees fit, the elders make a very similar mistake to Israel's elders back in chapter four. They take matters into their own hands. Right after their defeat of the hands of the Philistines in chapter 4, what do they do? Well, they concoct a plan for military victory by using the Ark of the Covenant to their advantage. And to them, such a tactic seems reasonable. Right? The Lord blessed that work in the past. We can replicate our military successes by bringing back out the Ark. But we saw last week how the Lord refuses to be used as a lucky totem according to his people's desires. And so therefore, they're crushed by the Philistines. And here again, we see the elders of Israel, rather than seeking the Lord, taking matters into their own hands, and they propose what they consider to be a reasonable plan. Let's get away from the model of the judges, and let's move to a monarchy. But when we think about what they're proposing here in light of their concerns, it's a rather ludicrous plan, isn't it? The elders seem to be concerned, as the text reads, about a hereditary judgeship that is developing. You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. So perhaps after being burned by Eli's sons and fearing the same could happen with Samuel's sons, their brilliant plan, being concerned about a hereditary judgeship, is to propose a hereditary kingship. That makes a lot of sense, does it? If they're afraid of a dynasty of judges, why are they proposing a dynasty of kings? Israel's shift to a monarchy warrants a little bit more thinking, though. Was the idea of a monarchy for Israel a bad idea? As we'll see in just a moment, the Lord and Samuel are both grieved by this request. So is it a bad idea? Is it a sinful thing for Israel to have a monarchy? Well, the clear answer from scripture is no, it's not. And there are three key pieces of evidence for why a monarchy was part of God's providential plan for his people. Let me give you those three. First, we see that there is a building prophetic expectation of a monarchy throughout the first few books of the Bible. So when old Jacob blesses his sons in the end of Genesis, he says over Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. 
In Numbers chapter 23, Balaam prophesies concerning Israel that the Lord their God is with them and the shout of a king is among them. In his final oracle, Balaam says in Numbers 24, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So the word of God anticipates and begins to prophesy this expectation that Israel would eventually develop a monarchy through the line of Judah as part of God's providential plan for his people. But second, the Lord grants Israel the ability to request a monarchy in his law and sets up expectations for a king. You can read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 17. The Lord says this, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around um, around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And continues on from there. So we see in Deuteronomy chapter 17 that God, that God permits Israel to request a king and it gives instructions for how that king should be chosen and provides expectations, a job description for that king. So there's a third point as well as we think about this, whether a king was right for Israel. The scriptures point to Israel's need for a king. The scriptures point to Israel's need for a king. The book of Judges, which tradition uh, attributes to the authorship of Samuel himself, is one long 300-year illustration of why Israel needs a monarchy. The aim of the book is very explicit, particularly in the final line, Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So because of Israel's recurring unfaithfulness, we see that they actually do need some sort of godly king who can mediate God's authority and to rule over them. So in 1 Samuel 8, the elders of Israel choose to exercise the God-given option to a monarchy. And so they take up the clause in Deuteronomy chapter 17, and they ask Samuel, do that. Do what Deuteronomy chapter 17 says, give us a king. And as we see, Samuel is very upset by this decision, and the Lord is grieved by it. But if the monarchy was God's good plan and intention for his people, why was the request then met with sorrow by the Lord and sorrow from Samuel? We get a clue to why as we look at their heart's motive revealed by their appeal. Did you catch it when we read it? Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. There we go. There it is. Israel wants to be like all the other nations. God intended for Israel to be a set-apart, direct theocracy using the judges as God's proxies for exerting his rule. Israel was to be a holy nation, unlike the rest of the nations, and even their government was to provide a strong contrast between them and the pagan nations around them. Other nations have a king, but Israel was to be ruled by the Lord. But Israel finds the political system of other nations alluring, something enticing, something attractive about it. And so as they watch the monarchy of all the nations around them, based off their viewpoint, what seems like a kingship is more efficient, it's more stable, it's more prosperous for us. And so because they desire, because they envy the other nations around them, they want to toss out the theocracy and replace it and establish a monarchy. 
Churches can find themselves making a similar error, can't they? With the rise of 20th century business practices, many congregations looked at the corporate structures of these booming organizations with envy. And so we witnessed many Baptist churches begin to abandon the model of biblical church government for the corporate models that were in vogue at the time. And so instead of regenerate church members who live together in covenant under the church's discipline and having elders who work together as a team to teach and shepherd the flock of God and deacons who are to aid and serve the needs of the saints, we said, no, we don't want that, right? We want committees. We want a board of directors. We want a pastor slash CEO. That's what we want. And in the envy of corporate America, the church lost her way in the bog of pragmatism and efficiency. But their motive to be like the other nations concealed a more sinister rebellion going on in Israel's heart because Israel did not request a king because they thought it would help them to be more faithful to the Lord. As we will begin to see, their request for a king is an act of treasonous rebellion against the Lord. Let's, let's keep reading in verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done. From the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Samuel is not happy about this request. In fact, the ESV kind of downplays the severity of Samuel's disappointment, the sharpness of it. A more literal translation of verse 6 would be, the thing was evil in the eyes of Samuel. Samuel was the one that the, the Lord had asked for, and now Israel is asking for a king. Samuel must have felt that this request resulted from his own personal leadership failure in some ways. Taking the request for a king as a rejection of his ministry and a failure of his ministry and it's wonderful how the Lord seeks to comfort Samuel in his sorrow and in his grief. The Lord's response is surprising to Samuel because he tells Samuel right from the get-go, obey the voice of the people. But then he goes on to comfort Samuel. He says, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You know, for those who serve in leadership, the Lord's comfort here can be an encouragement. That when a church rejects faithful pastors who faithfully proclaim God's word, such rejection is not of the man, but is of the Lord. And the Lord recognizes the intentions here of Israel's request. He calls it for what it is. The Lord can see through to the motives of the hearts. He discerns exactly what's going on in the hearts of those uh, Israelite elders. They do not make this request to honor God. Their aim is not to be more faithful to him, but their goal is to cast off the authority of God and to replace him with a human king. It's not that requesting for a monarchy was sinful, but it's the motives undergirding their requests that were sinful. We could imagine a very different conversation that the elders of Israel could have had with Samuel that probably would have been considered honoring to the Lord. 
They could have said something like this, Samuel, you're getting old. We get it. We all get old. And God has really blessed us under your leadership. We're so thankful for you, brother. And thankful the Lord raised you up to lead us and lead this revival and lead us to victory. And it seems just from our vantage point and watching the last 300 years that we follow God more faithfully when we have an ongoing human leader to represent God's authority over us, such as a king. And so, Samuel, would you go to the Lord and would you ask him if it would be wise for us to have a king so that we might obey the Lord and worship him more faithfully? Could you inquire? Could you check and see if the Lord would be honored by that decision? That's not their request, is it? Not at all. The Lord discerns clearly the motives of their heart. And what they're really saying is God as king stinks. Having Yahweh as our God and our king, it's pitiful. He makes our lives miserable. He's always judging us all the time because of our rebellion. This whole theocracy thing, let's do a revolution. Let's do away with it. Let's be like all the other nations and cast aside Yahweh and let's have a, a true king. That's, that's what's going on in their hearts. So, so Israel's request for a king was a renouncing of the theocracy that God had established at Sinai. The proposal was treasonous. It was rebellious. It is an act of war. And the elders of Israel were leading a national, political, and spiritual revolution. And the Lord recognizes it for what it is. And so the Lord recognizes that this request is part of Israel's ongoing pattern. Over and over and over again, ever since he brought them out of the land of Egypt, yet again, they are forsaking him. Yet again, they are seeking other gods. And so the Lord recognizes what's really going on. He sees through their facade. And yet he tells Samuel, obey their voice. I'm sure Samuel would have been shocked to hear that. God's judgment against sin is fierce. He's a holy God, a righteous God. He is a consuming fire. And sometimes his judgment manifests itself in raining down sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. Other times he consumes trespassers with the blaze of his glory like Nadab and Abihu, who offer a strange fire at the tabernacle. Sometimes his judgment comes by allowing a foreign pagan army like the Philistines to crush 30,000 Israelites in battle. And sometimes his judgment comes as 70 Levites who with irreverence fool around with the Ark of the Covenant drop dead. But perhaps God's severest judgment, his greatest judgment, his most severe reproof comes by giving us what we want. As Paul writes in Romans chapter one, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. He says, and God gave them up to dishonorable passions. The fiercest, fiercest judgment of God comes when he withholds his reproof and gives us over to our sinful desires. And so the Lord tells Samuel, obey their voice. It's not an indication of God's cowardice, but his judgment. First, though, Samuel must warn them of just what they are asking for. The Lord wants it to be really clear. Israel, if you want a king, let me make sure you know what having a king means. And so Samuel goes back to Israel to give them God's word of warning about operating under a monarchy. And we read this starting in verse 10. Let's keep going together. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, 
These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Samuel presents the way of the king, or alternatively translated, the justice of the king. And what sort of justice would a human monarch bring to Israel? And through Samuel, the Lord tells the truth about what shifting to a monarchy will entail for his people. This change of social order will give authority to a king to tax and conscript. Depending on human monarchy rather than the Lord, brings the toil of administrative costs inflicted upon Israel. The king will have authority to draft their sons into his armies. To maintain the monarchy's rule will require taxation to support the king, his officials, and his army. And the repeated word, I don't know if you noticed it as we read it, all throughout the passage is take. The king is going to be taking from you. He will take sons. He'll take daughters. He'll take the fruit of the fields. He'll take a tenth of the grain. He'll take a tenth of the flock. So this isn't a text arguing for a small and limited government, but it is a comment on the reality of all human government. The larger and more complex the government, the more it costs to maintain. And in contrast to the theocracy, where the Lord gave his people generously all the gifts, free of charge, moving to a monarchy will cause the king to have to take from the people. The Lord gave to his people the king will have to take to justify his government. The Lord's warning becomes sharp in verse 17. Did you catch it? You shall be his slaves. While the Lord redeemed the people out of slavery in Egypt, now the elders are requesting to be slaves yet again. Instead of serving the Lord, they want to become slaves to a new Pharaoh. And instead of serving the Lord, they choose a monarchy a king who will rule them as they are slaves. And the Lord gives a warning of judgment. He will not deliver the people from the monarchy. If you want this, if you choose this decision, I will not liberate you from the monarchy as I did bringing you out of Pharaoh's hand. You will be enslaved. The Lord says in verse 18, and in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. The future of God's people after this chapter, is forever and irreversibly hitched to their king. While a godly leader, a godly king, could bring God's blessing, a foolish leader will bring God's judgment. And in those moments, the Lord will give up his people to the consequences that come to the hands of their foolish kings. And it is through the wisdom of God that he takes the rebellious people's requests here in 1 Samuel 8, 
and still commits to doing them good. Isn't that fascinating? The history of Israel's monarchy will be a roller coaster ride of a few highs, but a lot of lows. The failure of Israel's monarchy will inevitably lead to its destruction and the consequences of exile. But God's word remains true. The future of God's people will be forever hitched to their king. And by the grace of God, the Lord provides his own king in the lineage of David, who will rule his people with justice. And Jesus is a king that is unlike all the kings of the nations. The kings of the nations rage and war and compete and fight and oppress and steal and enslave. But Jesus said, the king of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, but I among you am the one who serves. Jesus was not the king Israel asked for, but God, by his grace, provided the king that we all need. Jesus, as king, is a mediator. Israel needed a king who who could call them to obedience to the Lord and to his word. And even though the Lord rejected, uh, even though Israel rejected the Lord in demanding for a king, we see that the father brings the blessing of his rule through his son. Jesus mediates for us God's authority as king to us, while at the same time being God incarnate, God enfleshed. So marvel at the wisdom of God and his wondrous plan of redemption. That though Israel rejects theocracy for a monarchy, the Lord in his wisdom uses the monarchy to restore a theocracy. Jesus is also an otherworldly king, isn't he? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom without national boundaries, without taxes, without elections. Jesus's kingdom is a holy kingdom of priests operating throughout all the nations of the world and yet as exiles of the one nation of God. And though the church today is a people who gladly live under the rule of Christ, The day is coming and coming soon when our otherworldly king, Jesus, will come back, when he will return from his throne in heaven, and he will establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus' kingdom is filled with justice and generosity. In contrast to the justice of human kings, the way of human kings, the justice and way of Jesus the king is altogether different, isn't it? As Samuel gives us the warning of human kings here in the text, we see that Jesus inverts the warning, doesn't he? Jesus is the king without corruption. He is a king who refuses a bribe. He is a king who shows no partiality and whose every action is soaked in God's righteousness. But he is not only righteous in his justice, but he is generous towards his subjects. Instead of taking from us, Jesus gives his righteousness as a gift to us, as a reward to us. Instead of making us compelled slaves to his authority, he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the king who would come and wash the feet of his subjects. Instead of taxing us, exacting a price from our wallets to maintain his strength and power, the Lord Jesus invites us all to come empty-handed, and freely to the refuge of his salvation. 
So do you see how wondrously gracious and glorious our God is in the giving of Jesus? That through our foolishness, God brings about the blessing of his king. In our rebellion, he bestows upon us the blessings of authority through a king and savior who would serve us instead of take from us. Jesus is the king who would come in the midst of our rebellion, the midst of our treason, and in love, lay down his life for us on the cross. He would become a slave for our sake, and he would rescue us from the judgment and consequences of our sins to bring us under the salvation of his benevolent rule. But like Israel, we desire to be like the world, don't we? We desire to love our idols rather than the Lord. And our rebellious nature rejects the Lord. In our sin, we are all traitors. We are all rebels. We have all committed cosmic treason against the Lord. And we all wish to overthrow the, the kind and generous will of God in exchange for the shackles of sin. We've all done this, every one of us. And so Samuel gives them the warning of the Lord. But the people are insistent. We see they almost become more emboldened after hearing Samuel's cry and warning. And they go from merely requesting a king to now demanding a king. Let's keep reading in verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Do you hear the defiance in Israel's tone? Does their defiance mirror your own heart this morning? We have all gone astray. Each of us have sought our own way. And rather than submitting to the Lord, every one of us in our sin have decided to make ourselves king. We choose to be like the world. We've chosen to, to cast off God and his rule and his authority over us. And we don't want God as our king. And in the judgment of God, he gives us over to our sin. Have you tasted this morning the bitter consequences that come by your own sinful actions? But friend, take heart. The Lord is gracious to redeem. He's gracious to redeem. At the end of the chapter, we're left in anticipation. What's going to happen next? The Lord tells Samuel to obey the people, to give them a king, and then Samuel sends everyone back to their city. So we all have to wait to see who this king will be in future chapters. But friend, you do not need to wait to recognize who the king is this morning. The king is Jesus. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. So friend, therefore, do not rebel against the authority of Jesus any longer. Our lives are forever shaped by the decisions we make. Will you reject God's king this morning? Or will you submit to him gladly? Turn from your sins this day in repentance and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And the Lord will be gracious to receive you, to welcome you into his forever kingdom 
forgiving you of your treason and giving to you all the blessings that come from Jesus's kingdom. Righteousness, hope, grace, eternal life, unending joy are all available who submit themselves to Jesus's kingdom. Do not spurn God's king. Instead, this morning, let me invite you to humble yourself today and bend your knee to God's king. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you have come to be our king. Lord, we confess that like Israel, we are rebellious, that the world allures us and captivates us, and we want to be just like the world. And Lord, we do that by casting off your authority over our lives, by spurning your word, by disregarding it, neglecting it, and sometimes just outright disobeying it. Father, we pray this morning that you would humble all of us in our sin. And Lord, we are so grateful that in your kindness, you took Israel's wicked decision, sinful decision to have a king. And Lord, you brought about the great good of Jesus through that kingship. Father, we are grateful for your wisdom. We're grateful for your mercy and your grace. We're grateful for your commitment to do good to your people, even in their rebellion. And so, Lord, I pray this morning for those who do not know you. Lord, I pray, Lord, that as they see the consequences of their sin, that they would see it as God's grace, that they might recognize his judgment now before it's too late. And Father, I pray that this morning they would humble themselves before you, that they would turn from their sins, that they would put their faith in your king, that they would put their faith in Jesus who came to serve and lay down his life for us. Father, I pray for your church, those who have gladly submitted to Jesus' rule. Lord, I pray that we would be emboldened in greater confidence and joy of casting aside every idol and submitting gladly our lives to Jesus. Lord, we are so grateful that in Jesus, you have given us righteousness and eternal life and joy and forgiveness and communion with you for eternity. So, Father, as we respond to your word this morning, we pray that we would all respond to it with humility with confession of sin, with repentance, and with a fresh gaze of Jesus' glory as King. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.